The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. This is the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Corey. Well, friends, how are we doing? It's a good Sunday in our city, a fun Sunday. Uh, Curiously, there was one group that Chad had left out. And that's the mimosa-drinking, sign-wielding taunters. (laughs) I saw you. I know who you are. We're coming for you. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Phil, and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Downtown, and I get the honor and privilege uh, to preach God's Word this evening to you. Uh, It is a 5 p.m. only Sunday, and uh, that's the Sunday, also post-Easter, where they roll out the worship leaders, so um, you're stuck with me. But the question came to me uh, on a standalone, which we, we call a standalone outside of a, a regular sermon series. Uh, what do you preach on following Lent, this incredible journey of Lent leading up to this beautiful celebration of Easter? Also, what do you preach on following a, a two-year journey in the Gospel of Mark? So I thought, well, let's just run it back. Let's do the resurrection again. So we're stuck with John 20 this evening. Uh, but in all seriousness, this last year, we, uh, we did something new as a church, uh, coming out of the Christmas, uh, Christmas day, we actually celebrated a season that's been known forever as Christmas Tide, um, where we stop and we, we simmer in and we, we sit with the realities of Christmas together for multiple Sundays following Christmas Day. Uh, and the beauty of the Christian calendar uh, is that following Easter, there's a beautiful celebration of Easter Tide that follows uh, just in line with that as well. And so, what better? text, what better theme to hit than resurrection once again as a people. Uh, And so I'm going to pray to get us started, and uh, you can pray for me as well. Uh, Father, we come to you once again. We know you're hearing us. God, we want to believe you're listening to us. And uh, we want to offer up our time again. We want to offer up this room. We want to offer up our hearts, offer up our minds. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would meet with us, you'd speak to us through your word, um, and not through mere words. Uh, We ask it in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen, amen. While I was watching, my wife's eyes widen in real time, widen to the size of the dinner plates sitting in front of us on the table as the words came out of this poor girl's mouth. We were sitting down to dinner, 
Uh, and we were catching up with an old friend who was visiting us in town who had happened to bring along uh, his new girlfriend. And inevitably, the question of what do you do for a living came up. Now, none of us, especially my wife Rachel, uh, were particularly prepared for the words that came out of her mouth. She says, I'm a magician's assistant. <laughs> now, that might not be very surprising to you, and uh, this poor girl had no way of knowing that for the past four months, my wife was on an epic self-driven quest to discover the hidden secrets of the world of illusion. <laughs> Countless podcasts, a couple of YouTube videos, and a massive 300-page history of magic by David Copperfield were bearing down on the table as my wife shrieked with glee at this revelation. Her hidden obsession had surfaced, and it happened right here uh, at our dinner table. And the beauty of this is that the truth is that we're all in some form or fashion uh, intrigued or maybe smitten with magic or illusions. Whether it's the tired card trick that your friend from high school predictably reaches for at the bar, or the final countdown knife-in-teeth pyrotechnic stage dance of Job Bluth. We love magic. <laughs> Some of you got that one. Now, one of our favorite movies, uh, The Prestige, speaks to this interest in the most insightful way. There's a scene where an old stage engineer, a character, uh, explains the way that humanity relates to magic tricks in particular and to illusion in general. And he says this, every great magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal, but of course it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because of course you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Now, here's what I love about this quote. All of us, in some way, assent to or are longing for a reality that's above or beyond our powers of reason. Not necessarily contradictory to it, but ab above it, just out of reach where what we might call the spiritual exists. We want to be fooled, if not to simply be reminded that our understanding, our grasp of what is happening around us, is not everything. Doubt, it seems, is a useful tool when engaging a physical world around us, but it has its limitations. Now, I recognize that I'm treading on thin ice by equating resurrection with magic tricks. But the sentiment is true. We love to have our senses overrun. We love to be left amazed with facts that we're not quite able to piece together. And so, today, this week out from Easter, we find ourselves in John's Gospel. And this is what it says earlier in the passage in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, 
peace be with you. Now, our text for this evening is centered on Thomas's doubt and his following confession. Just a week out from the actual first Easter Sunday. But John chapter 20 first takes us to the evening of that resurrection day, following some truly spooky accounts and potentially contradictory facts about the laws of nature that have the disciples in the entire Jesus community completely perplexed, but perhaps a little bit hopeful. Now, whereas the end of Mark's gospel that we just preached last week left us with no encounter with the present risen Christ, John's gospel has already given us three. John's believing upon seeing the empty grave clothes, Mary's encounter with the strange gardener who ends up being the Lord, and then the disciples behind locked doors freak out where a scar brandishing Jesus appears, causing the whole room to believe in ghosts once again, while he promptly follows up with a confusing speech about forgiving sins and him breathing on them. See, Jesus had died. He was dead. And it was a public, and it was an excruciating death at Golgotha, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. The disciples knew this to be true, and they were still navigating the fallout from it, hence the need for a locked door. They were in hiding from the religious authorities, left in fear and sorrow for what had just taken place in the last three days. So Jesus' appearance, he's supposed to be dead, was mind-altering. It was, it was world-shattering, unfathomably impossible. And yet, here he is, the risen Jesus. The Bible aptly describes their response, saying, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Uh, that might be the understatement of eternity. The inexpressible joy that these friends must have felt. See, all of us, we, we love the underdog story, right? And it's precisely because it is in the shocking improbability of victory where an untapped reservoir of joy lives. This should not be possible, and yet it happened. This is the resurrection. Their friend, their master, their Messiah was alive. Had the whole world flipped upside down? We have a favorite book in our home. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. You may have heard of it. And it says it this way. Everything sad was coming untrue. Isn't that amazing? Joy unexplainable. And not only joy, but peace too. These followers of Jesus, I don't know if you, you quite remember, but they failed epically. They failed their friend. They could not watch with him for an hour praying in the garden. They fled as the authorities came with Judas and his betrayal kiss. They were absent at his crucifixion. They were failures, each one of them. They should have expected a stern rebuke, the uh-oh, dad's home from work and we broke a window expectation. But Jesus' first words to his friends are peace. He could have taken the task, every one of them, but he comes with peace to his chaos-toppled, guilt-stricken brothers, and he comes speaking peace to the world to come. One commentator says it this way, shalom. Shalom is this beautiful word, peace be with you. In its Old Testament context, shalom basically means well-being in its fullest sense. It gathers up all the blessings of the kingdom of God. Shalom is life at its best under the gracious hand of God. Jesus' use of it on that Easter evening therefore represented the first truly authentic bestowal of shalom in the history of the world. Precisely because he has brought the kingdom of God into realization by his death and rising, 
Now and only now is shalom a realizable blessing. Thus, his shalom on Easter evening is the complement of his it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Shalom, accordingly, is supremely the Easter greeting. Is this not the message that our world needs? This shalom, this peace. Is this not the message that we need? This joy and peace. This is what Jesus is bringing as he appears to his disciples. Here's the story of a shattered community with an unbelievable reversal of joy and peace. And yet, there is one disciple besides Judas the traitor who is not present. Thomas is not there. Where is he? Who is he? We read in John 20, 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. Now, our first question is this. Who is Thomas? And what about Thomas is so compelling to us? See, Thomas has a nickname with his friends, the twin. And despite all of my best efforts, I have no idea why they called him that. Sorry. I was going to drop something really profound. His dual nature. No, I have no idea. His friends had given him this nickname. But we know him by another nickname, Doubting Thomas. This is compelling. Why is his doubt so compelling? Well, I think that many of us can attest to that being a fairly normal posture for the human experience. We are, by fallen nature, doubters. And Thomas seems to pave the way for us all. We like Thomas because we see ourselves in him. And there's room at the table, yes? In reality, this is actually not the first time we meet Thomas, though. It's not even the first time we witness him speaking. John's gospel records two other instances of Thomas responding to events in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Here's one of them. John chapter 11. Jesus and his crew are told of their friend Lazarus' death. And when Jesus tells his friends that they must go to him and wake him up, the disciples are stunned. They had just been chased away from Judea by his enemies, who had already tried to kill him with stones. Now he wants to return? Thomas is brave enough and skeptical enough to voice all the disciples' concerns when he says this in verse 16. Let us also go, that we may die with him. That's a bold enough statement on its own. But at this point, Jesus' followers actually have no conception of the Messiah facing death, despite his constant revelations to the contrary. Thomas has been lauded at times for his bravery in this statement. But in this instance, it reads more like sarcastic resignation. Look, this Messiah of ours is crazy, and his plan to return to Judea is also crazy. And he's going to make us go to our deaths. We might as well join him, for that's surely coming for us if we show up in Judea again. He's likely no Messiah at all. Now, we'll explore Thomas's unbelief a bit more in detail later, but it's worth noting that he does not exist in a vacuum, not even within this gospel account. Thomas has had difficulty already seeing not just the reality of Jesus as Messiah, but he has also revealed a disposition in himself that's marked with skepticism and suspicion, which brings us to the current moment in this text. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He's not there! 
Thomas alone. And there really could be a million reasons for why Thomas is not with the disciples on the evening of Easter. And it's likely that it was not simply just one of those reasons, right? People are complicated, and they react both predictably and surprisingly in the face of such terrible events. And it's often a number of things that bring about our human reactions. Thomas is no different. Was he overrun with fear? Possibly. Did he go to the wrong room? Less likely, but maybe. Was he fostering a deep anger and a bitterness in his heart that the claims of this Christ were untrue, that the disciples were fools, that he was a fool? Also possible. Same commentator says it again. He says, Thomas cut himself off from the disciple community, possibly to try to work through his problems on his own, or perhaps because he could no longer feel able to identify with what they represented. Does that sound familiar? The inability to identify with a group after great tragedy, when communal purpose is seemingly lost. This is an all too common tendency for us. Jettisoning our community after difficulty, trial, pain, misunderstanding, conflict. It's a distancing from a place of hardship that we all know too well What is it about us where we often feel that the wisest, strongest course of action to process difficulty happens best away from others, on our own, isolated? This takes us right back to the very beginning of creation. What happens? Adam and Eve sin, breaking fellowship with their creator, only to hide from him among the bushes as if he doesn't know where they are until he kindly and eventually draws them out. There's a deep fracture that runs through each of us. Thomas has chosen isolation over navigating the messiness of community in chaos. If not entirely relatable to you, you can at least understand his decision-making, his thought process. Pain begets pain, and this pain is specific to this group, therefore I must leave it. And it's this very decision It causes him to miss the greatest miracle of all time, the appearance of the risen Christ. Thomas pays dearly for his skepticism and his fear. Now his friends, in an attempt to draw him back into the community, are ecstatic as they tell him what they've seen. We've seen the Lord! Can you imagine that proclamation? We've seen him! But Thomas is quick, quick to check their invitation. No, 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 no. Unless I see Unless I touch, unless I feel the wound in his side, I will never believe. The weight of this declaration, it's so forceful in its finality. I will never. Thomas himself, in his disposition and his experience, is the perfect storm for such a shocking declaration of unbelief. Three deadly ingredients for a skeptic episode of such magnitude. Disposition, isolation, and then contradiction in his mind. He's already a person of skeptical proclivity. He's isolated himself from the one group of people who could be present with him in his confusion and his grief. And he's just experienced the worst possible outcome imaginable to this type of Messiah that he had left everything to follow. Here, we have a wonderfully hopeless man 
And it's to this wonderfully hopeless man that the risen Christ decides to reveal himself. So I'd like to close the rest of this sermon out with five points, five ways in which the risen Jesus meets Thomas and the way he meets us all. And then finally, what do we even do with all of our doubts and skepticism anyway? So how does the risen Jesus meet Thomas and us all? First, he lets him wait. He lets him wait. Eight days to be exact, that's what the text says. He lets him wait eight days until he shows up again. That's a whole lot of time, quite a long time since the first appearance to the disciple community. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, he says, he that sows a short period of skepticism often reaps a long period of trouble. Trouble indeed. Thomas is left with his doubts for quite some time. And yet, it's navigating doubt and skepticism and understanding and processing your own story that actually takes time. So flipped upside down, Jesus gives Thomas eight days. Eight days to process all that had been happening, all that he's hearing and seeing. I imagine there were many late nights where Thomas kept his friends wide awake, asking them to recount once again, frame by frame, in exact detail, how Jesus had entered the room that night. What did he say? What did he look like? What was his posture? Did he say my name? There's a mysterious beauty to allowing Thomas this period of time before he sees Jesus. It is this time of troubling that allows him to wrestle. It gives him a chance to be present with his doubt in a way that the other disciples don't receive. And yet better still, Jesus is not afraid of our doubting and our questioning. He's not frantically trying to manage us on some unseen timetable, anxiously pacing the halls of heaven. He's not off-put by our assumptions and our grapplings. He's patient. But make no mistake, he will pursue you. In his divine wisdom and grace, he comes after us. And so he lets Thomas wait, and then too, he offers a patient and a present grace. Verse 27 says it like this. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Is this not a beautiful gesture? Jesus coming to Thomas. Not only does he enter the room a second time, in some sense recreating the first encounter from a week before, he also offers up his own wounds to his friend. See and touch. Place your hand in here. I did this for you. He gives to Thomas a wonderful gift, answering his prayer, his demand beyond measure. Jesus heard the bitterness in Thomas's prayer. Jesus felt the sting of unbelief pulsing through his declaration that he would never believe. Jesus weighed the tears that he shed in isolation that he could not, would not bring to the rest of his grieving friends. Jesus was entirely present to Thomas's experience. And here, in this locked room, he moves toward Thomas, not away. This is beautiful. So the question comes to us, how might God desire to move toward you today? What is that lingering, sorrowful place of doubt in your own soul that you would dare not bring before him? 
Even now, as you look around, as you think about your friends and your family, the circumstances of your own story, where you've been, where you're headed, what grace is God extending to you in this very moment? And how might you receive it? Jesus moves toward us. Three, he issues a serious rebuke. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is not all affirmation with his friend. He checks him. Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. He offers once again his shalom peace, extending his very wounds to his unbelieving friend, but then he comes directly for Thomas and his unbelief. He was aware of his outlandish prayer. He knew the misplaced anger and his conflicted reasoning. Jesus was present to Thomas, even though Thomas was absent, both to the community, to himself, and to Jesus. This is important to note for us. Jesus is patient with us in our doubt, but he's also serious about us learning from his faithfulness and his truthfulness. Not because he's insecure, but because he desires for us to grow. Remember that the burden of proof with God isn't his problem, but it's, it's ours. And Jesus comes at us in this way. He issues a serious rebuke. Four, he covers us with his rule and his reign. Verse 28, Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. Here's the whole purpose of John's gospel. The entirety of the gospel is an ascending mountain to this point, this profession of faith, this this declaration of belief, that we would all come to know that Jesus is Lord and God. John confirms this again three verses later when he says that this book was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of this is meant to invite belief and submission. Life in Jesus comes through faith in him, and faith is actually allegiance to his rule. This may sound elementary to some of us, but it begs saying, he's not simply a good teacher, he's not simply a faithful example, he's not a well-intentioned martyr, he is Lord and God. This is who he is. The reason Jesus requires one response, allegiance and worship from the entirety of our lives. All of the life of faith comes through this one Jewish man who walked the roads of first century Palestine. Are there difficult passages in the Bible to reconcile? Absolutely. Has the church been guilty of atrocity and abuse? Undeniably. Is it hard to reconcile the existence of God with the evil that we see in the world and in our own hearts? You bet. But if Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he would do, then our faith is sure. And it is this very resurrection account that seals it. All roads lead through Jesus as Lord and God. Thomas recognizes this. And he places the entirety of his life under the protection of this Lord and God. He covers us with his rule and his reign. And then five, Jesus resets the grounds for faith. Verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have belief. Thomas could not initially receive the apostolic witness himself. He needed the physical Christ in front of him, inviting him to place his own hands on the marks of suffering. We don't know what would have happened had God allowed Thomas to wait another eight days. Maybe the apostles would have won him over. But here we are, 2,000 years later, 
And what do we have? The apostolic witness. This is the primary way that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to reveal himself to our world through the witness of his people. Now there are many, many great resources for understanding, studying, exploring the resurrection account and its truthfulness. And uh, maybe you're a highly skeptical person who is skeptical of the claims of Jesus and his church. Uh, And the good news is you're in here. You're here. You're present. You're with us. That's something. The question is, will you go a step forward to explore the claims of Jesus and his resurrection? Will you place yourself in the room with the apostles? This is the invitation for us. And then Christian, be reminded that we are a people of faith. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we walk by faith, not by sight. It's this very faith where Christ meets us and God blesses us. And faith is a continuing work. It's necessary for each new day and task. Let us not grow weary of believing. Jesus resets the grounds for faith for us. Now this is how Jesus meets Thomas, with all of his doubt, all of his uncertainty. And he wants to meet us in similar ways as well. So the question remains, what can we then do with our doubts and skepticism in light of this? Here are three suggestions. What to do with our doubt and skepticism. First is bring it to yourself. Bring your doubts to yourself. Now that may sound strange or uh, not right, but we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with what's happening inside here if we're ever going to be able to see rightly. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know where you are, where you've come from, how can you begin to see which way you are going? We have to have honesty with our doubts. Where does it come from? What's driving it? Is it purely intellectual? Have you listened to a whole lot of really smart, skeptical people and not any smart, intelligent Christians? They're out there. They exist. Some in this room. Is it purely intellectual? Is your doubt coming from a failed institution? Do you have church hurt? Are you bruised by a poor or a disqualified leader? Maybe that's where your doubt's coming from. Is it poor witness? Have you seen poor witness of Christians in your life? Or have you been a poor witness as a Christian? Being honest with ourselves about where our doubt comes from helps us to see just a little bit clearer. We have to bring it to ourselves. Two, we need to bring it to our community. First, you have to have a community. Thomas, we notice, is reluctant at first. But eventually, eventually, he's with his brothers again, right? We have to recognize our tendency to flee, our tendency to hide, our tendency to isolate. For it's isolation that that breeds uh, an inwardness, an arrogance that's not easily seen. Who's able to check you? Who's able to press the thoughts of your own heart? Jeremiah 17 says it best, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You need a community to help you understand it. So bring your doubts to your community. Bring your doubts to people that will sit with you in that place and help you hold those. And then finally, we need to bring it to Jesus. Bring our doubt to Jesus. Thomas comes back to that room. Like he came back. How often have you come back to this place and asked Jesus to meet you there? Maybe you don't believe the claims of Christ. Maybe you don't call yourself a Christian at this point. 
this may sound strange, but the invitation to a, a God above your reason, asking him to reveal himself, will often uh, yield some pretty surprising results. Uh, that was my story as a 16-year-old who was bruised up and hurt with loneliness and depression. And I remember going on long, late-night walks, asking God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And uh, the beautiful thing is he did. He did. He revealed himself to me. If, we're, if you're able to come to that place of asking those questions, you might be surprised where God might meet you. Maybe you're turned around in your response to the experience of this world. Maybe you've experienced some hard things. Well, here's the good news. What circumstance are you facing that the Lord Jesus has not himself faced? As he sweat drops of blood in the garden under the weight of his mission. As he heard the crowds who once exclaimed Hosanna now scream crucify. As he felt the full weight of the sins of the world slammed into his broken body on the cross. We hear the whisper of doubt in Jesus' prayer on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In your doubt, you're in good company. Bring it to him. He's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. So friends, in Thomas, we have an all too real and familiar example of the doubt and skepticism that we often harbor in our own hearts in light of faith. And it's at this exact place that the risen Jesus meets Thomas. Were we to bring ourselves to this very place, he might do the same for us. Amen? May it be so. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we, we believe that when your word goes out, it doesn't come back void. And so even now, um, as we wrestle with, with our own doubts, our own skepticism in our hearts, God, would you meet us in that place? Father, would you help us to be honest with ourselves? Would you help us to be honest with our communities? And would you help us to be honest with you, Lord Jesus? So once again, would you draw us back to yourself? Would you bring us courage to look within ourselves and to offer back to you those places of confusion and fear? And we ask it believing that you can move in power, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen.